it's just a subtle variation on the responsive reading. <laughs> Same concept. There is a... Um, There's a website out there called DeadlySins.com, and it, it's a mixed bag. At some level, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what they're about. Some of it is relatively serious. They've got some uh, quotes from Aquinas and, and others that are pretty profound, and on the other hand, they clearly have their tongue-in-cheek on a number of them, and it's particularly up to the top. No, go back. Go back where you were. Yeah, there we go. This is the, uh, at, every, at every sin, they have a synopsis of what it's about. And then, here we are for lust. That's where we are today. Lust. What it is? Lust is an inordinate craving for the pleasure of the body. Okay, seems reasonable enough. Why you do it? Oh, please. <laughs> I love that because there is a certain sense of, oh, please, to this topic today on a number of different levels. One of them is, okay, for the next 25 minutes, am I going to describe to you why, why you struggle with lust? Oh, please, come on. It's pretty obvious. On the other hand... There's the old please part, which is, so, let me get this straight. So if I take a glance and look at somebody who's attractive, just, you know, admiring creation. If I look at somebody who's attractive, this is deadly? Oh, please, come on. Did a bunch of monks sit around and come up with this one? You know, we got a, we're locked away and we, you know, not seeing anybody, so you can't either. It seems, just come on, it's a bit of an overreaction. Oh, oh, please. You know, now we're at the, we're, I guess we're firmly ensconced in, you know, rigid, narrow-minded Christianity where, you know, don't, don't look at girls, it's bad for you. You know, you'll, your, your eyes will fall out or something. There's definitely an oh, please factor to this. And uh, particularly in our culture where lust is like, I just, I just can't get the idea that this could be wrong. That's a big deal. For some of you, there's another oh please factor and that you don't struggle at all with how deadly this is. You're fully aware how deadly it is. And you're fully aware of what it's done to your life and to your relationships. You've gotten relatively deeply enmeshed in some stuff that has has torn you apart. And your oh please is different. Your oh please is, oh come on, 25, 30 minutes, you're going to fix me? Oh please, come on. It's a little more serious than that. Don't give me some three or four principal things and make it all go away. And yet on the other hand, you're probably saying this, but you know if you could, That'd be great. Do you got a wrench in there? Do you got a screwdriver? You got something you can fix this? Can you make it go away? Can you fix me? Yes, actually. Not kidding. I I can't. But yes, it can go away. And so what we're going to do is as we walk through this, Toward the end, I want to lay out some resources for you that, yes, you can actually make progress here. So my twofold thing is, for those of you who feel trapped in the midst of this seven deadly sin of lust, which has 
corralled your life and holds you hostage, yes, there is a way out. And for those of you who are still sitting there going, oh, please, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Well, we're going to walk through that and see exactly what it is that is so deadly about it. Now, to do that, I want to start with the words of Jesus, because Jesus took it really seriously. I mean, really seriously. And he's in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, um, a section of the Bible. It's his longest you know, speaking section. And he's, he's talking to some people, and he's essentially going through a list of, of activities that, that people were, you know, particularly the religious elite of that day were saying, you know, we sort of got this whole following God thing down. You know, it's don't kill, don't, you know, if I don't do these big, you know, sins, I'm really fine, right? And he is wading through that, and he's trying to reorient their thinking completely to the point that you're, you're sort of missing it here. You're missing something about the dignity of the soul in the midst of these injunctions. And, and adultery is one of those he deals with. And essentially, it's, it's on the screen, but I'm going to paraphrase. He, he looks at him and says, Now, I, I know you've heard you're not supposed to commit adultery. Did you really think that was it? Did, did you really think that your heart was safe and whole if you happened to not have slept with somebody else's wife or husband? Do you not know that if you lust after somebody, you have an inordinate sexual desire for somebody that you're not supposed to? Do you not know that if you do that, you've already committed adultery in your heart? And then he goes on and he gets really radical. And he says, look, if your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Take it out. Well, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. Saying, really, I'm, I'm serious with you. These, these superficial <laughs> things are nowhere near the damage you do to your heart. He's, he's being hyperbolic, exaggeration for effect. What he's saying is this, is, this is deadly serious. Lust's not a joke. It'll, it'll, it'll tear you up. Now, what I want to do is walk through a little bit of what, where lust comes from. And I, I know, oh, please. But still... I think I'll give you probably some unexpected ways of thinking about this. And then look at why it is, three reasons, really, three reasons why I think it's so deadly for us. And one of the things I intend to do here is get the whole room, not just, not just the men. Because that's one of the things. Sometimes when you come into the room and the 50% are going, okay, the only thing I really need to do is get my elbow ready to, you know, to nudge the... <laughs> see? I to- see? I told you. That's, that's, it, yeah. No, it's, it's for you, too. It's for you, too. It may function in a slightly different way, but it's for you, too. The inordinate desire for a sexual object or the inordinate desire, really, lust is the inordinate desire for something that is not ours to have. So, where does it come from? I think it comes from several different places. One of them, in a good way, at the beginning, and I'm stressing, at the beginning, it comes from, from something that's actually quite pure, that's actually quite whole, and, th- and that is this. We were made for beauty. We were made to take in beauty. That's, that's sort of part and parcel to who we are as, as beings made in the image of God. Aquinas, the, the medieval philosopher, said, beauty is that which pleases when seen. And he said, we were made for beauty. And the reason why their beauty draws us is because God is a creature of, of beauty, of absolute beauty. He is whole. And he, and he is good. And in his character, there are things that draw us. That, 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 that produce an, a holy and healthy longing. He, God is, is beautiful. He is beauty. And so there's something about our souls that's drawn to things of beauty. I, when I, I drove up to um, Asheville 
over, over the weekend with, with my wife, and we were going up to a, a wedding there. And, you know, we're driving, th- you drive this time of the year up to Asheville, and it's beautiful. Seriously. I mean, you, you know, the leaves are turning, and you got the mountains, and you, you can't help but go by and want to take it in. Do you know what I mean? It's dangerous when you're driving. But you want to take it in, don't you? Because that's who we are. We're, we're creatures who are made for beauty. And so some of it begins, stress, begins there. There's another place where it begins, which is also relatively healthy, which is you were made as a sexual being. Whether you're married or single or divorced or, I mean, I think I hit all the categories. You really can't meet any, it's really married or single. You are a sexual being. It's part and parcel who you are. You were made with sexual desires. We're relatively PG-13 today, just so you know, okay? This is, you know, no, there's no R, but relatively PG-13. We're sexual beings. And, and, and some of the, so the, the, the misconception of Christianity has, has been this. It's like, well, sex is bad. It's clearly bad. It's clearly not something we're supposed to enjoy. And when you're married, you get to do it. But you should feel guilty. And, uh, you know, in, in our marriage... Uh, conversations, by the way, we teach the exact opposite. We teach that, you know, marriage is a place for, sex should be frequent and it should be free and it should be joyful and it should be uninhibited. It should be two, two lives and souls and bodies combining and, and, and joy and it should not be something that you ever feel guilty or reticent about. But that's sort of the, the view. That, okay, I, you know, sex is bad and I get this window apparently where it's, it's not bad but it still feels bad because it's really bad. It's sort of a dirty thing. This is not Christianity. That's a whole cultural thing. That's maybe Elizabethan England. But what, it, what Christianity is, that you're, you're a sexual being. You were created with sexual desires. And so, again, that, there's a part of it that comes from a place that, that's very whole, but it's, it's the third place that it comes from where it turns. It's the third place where that desire for more that desire for beauty that desire that comes out of sexuality is now placed on someone who I ought to not have who is not for me and yet I'm already seeking to possess them if not physically certainly mentally I'm seeking to possess them my desires for them are out of keeping with what they ought to be they are not from a place of health or wholeness what is the place here's what it is here are the three things I think that happens lust and why it's so damaging. What happens in lust is, first of all, other people become commodities. They're just objects. They're just commodities. They are no longer someone who I'm seeing other than in some superficial way. I see them. I take them in. I rate them. I look away. I look at that one. Depending on how I value what they do to this desire within me. Semi-aside, for the, particularly for the women in the room, although men, you can maybe apply this too. Women in the room, girls, women, you were not a commodity. Do not present yourself as one. I'm not saying don't dress beautifully, I'm not saying don't seek to be attractive. I'm not saying that at all. You know what I mean. Don't make yourself into a commodity to be raided and bought and sold. You are more than that. You're far more than that. 
when we engage in lust, somebody else becomes a commodity. What do we become? We become users. We become somebody who just uses other people for our own gain, for what it feels like to us, whether the person is an actual person or whether the person is an airbrushed image. They become something that we use. This, my friends, is the diametric opposed of how you were created. You were created to love people. You were created to care about other souls. You were created to weigh into their life. And when we lust, we are not able to do that because all they are is somebody that we're using for our own ends. Sometimes unbeknownst to them and sometimes beknownst to them. There's somebody we're just using. When you become a user, at those times when you become a user, when that pattern lays hold of your life, you are not the person God made you to be. Third thing that happens in lust is this. Lust will own you. Lock, stock, and barrel. It will take your life. Because lust really is a preoccupation with something, an inordinate preoccupation with something that we can't let go of. And that preoccupation takes over our lives and it changes us. It changes us into the sort of people who are always looking for the next thing. Because there's always something better. Always. My heart has now been trained to, I look for something else. That looks nice, but how about that? Oh, look at that. There's always something better. There's always something that pulls you away. It will become the preoccupation of your heart in such a way that it begins to destroy your relationships. Because it's not about the sex. It's about our inability to love people and to focus on what's mattered. And so what happens is, in relationships, I begin to teach my heart to always be looking. I'm having a conversation with Dave, but I'm looking. I'm looking around at what comes in the room. I'm looking for somebody more interesting to talk to. Not that Dave's not scintillatingly interesting. But there's always somebody more interesting. I'm in a relationship... There's always something else. If things go bad, there'll always be another option. You see, I think lust for women, for men, okay, I just think we're that superficial. I have to be honest. I think there's a level of superficiality to the male of the species that is pretty easily dragged away. And you look through the, sometime read through the, like the first seven chapters of this Old Testament wisdom book called Proverbs, and you look at it and you go like, oh, Lord. Because it's like the guys are just, they just keep getting led away into stupidity. But I think for women, the lust, the inordinate desire, comes more from the fact of, oh, he's, he'd be nicer. He's, oh, he's so charismatic. Uh, that, mm, he'd be better. He'd be better to me. They'd love me more. They'd treat me as I deserve. There's always something else. I can't focus. There's something else. There's always something else to look at. There's always something better. The trap is devastating. When lust, when the desire for something that we, is not ours and we do not have, when that takes cold, we can never be content with what we have, ever. The preoccupation becomes overwhelming. I'm always seeking something else whether it's sexual or physical. What you may pick up is these deadly sins, they really, they, get, they overlap. <laughs> you know, greed, 
and gluttony and envy and lust, they all overlap and they feed on each other. And lust, if you do not, if you do not at some point in your life, sooner rather than later, if you do not at some point in life learn to deal with lust, it will start to accelerate the other deadly sins. And you will become a person who's discontent with whatever you have. Because you're always looking. You've trained your heart to find something else. You know, Kurt and I were um, talking about this issue, and both he and I do a fair bit of premarital and marriage counseling, and fair bit. And one of the things we, we see is that often guys, before they're married, they may get involved with pornography, they may get involved with some practices that they tell themselves it'll go away when I'm married. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Because they've trained their heart to keep looking. They've trained their heart that there's always something else. For some of you, I know this will feel too far away. You're 18 or 20 or 22 and you're not married and you think, I'm bulletproof. I can wade into anything because I'll always be able to get out. And lust, pornography, whatever. I, you know, When I get married, it'll all go away. Understand how I say this. I like you. I do. You're not special. You're very special. We're all special in our own way. You're not special. You are not the one who defies what harms everyone else. You're not the one who breaks the rules and it works. You're not the one who can play with fire and not get burned. Because there is no one for whom that's the case. Some of you know it all too well. That is why lust is deadly. It turns other people into objects. It turns you into a user. And it trains your heart, deeply programs your heart to discontentment and always looking for something more. And this is, as I said, the diametric opposite of what God wants to do in you and what you were made for. Made for far, far more than this. So, how do we fix this? How do we take care of this problem? Well, I'm going to wade through this a couple of different ways, but first of all, starting off with this thought, you are not defenseless. One of the, the lies you hear in your head is that I, I'll never get past this. I can't. It's too much for me. You are not defenseless. And we will walk through ways of beginning to wade fully in to retraining your heart into what it's supposed to be. I'm going to put up a verse for you which will lead us into this. And this is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a very long chapter in the Bible. It's a very long song. If they'd clapped the whole time during that one, their hands would have gotten very tired. It's a very long song. I encourage you to begin to wade through Psalm 119. It will be worth your effort. And this is a passage that's often quoted in this context, and it's a, for good reason. It's a good one. This is what it says. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Short, the cliff notes is, God has given us his word in order to retrain our hearts. Now, before we get to how we're going to do that, I want to drop back a little bit and say how that doesn't work. It doesn't work by you going, okay, okay, lust is bad. It's gotten a little dicey for me. I need to change that. Okay, I'm going to read my Bible today. Oh, I know what I do. Anytime I get lustful thoughts, I'll pick up my Bible real fast and read it. Now, I'm not saying that, I, honestly, I'm not saying that's a terrible idea. I'm saying it won't fix it. <laughs> because then, you know, seriously, if there's a problem here, if you're dealing with this problem and you got that and you've got your Bible, I won't do that, I'll do this. You know, I'll give you a week. Because it's not it. It's, it's not a matter of diversion. It's not a matter of distraction. The Bible's not something where you can use it sort of to take your attention away for a while. It is intended by God to retrain your heart. It's why he gave it to you. To tell the story of his redemptive movement on earth, which is for you to bring you to himself and retrain your heart to become whole again. And the psalmist here is writing this. He said, I seek you with all my heart. Don't, please don't let me stray. I want more. I want more out of my life. And then he says this word, I've I've hidden your word in my heart that I won't sin against you, that I will not continue to live out this pattern of objectifying people, of becoming a user, of always looking for something more. What does he mean by that? I've hidden my word in your heart. Well, it's often taken as, you know, memorize the Bible and then you'll have it at your disposal. That's that's not a bad thing at all. (laughs) It's not. I mean, you get so many messages played in your head constantly. I will just say this without any fear of contradiction. You live in a culture, a mediated culture, where you are systematically taught to lust. You know, between services, one of my friends was saying they were in a, they were watching a the, the runaway runaway ride movie years ago. They saw it in the theater, and it was um, you know Richard Gere's in it. And every time he came in the screen, there was a group of you know girls behind him, and they would sort of be like, ah. Oh. But then. He, 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 he had these beautiful lines, you know, where he said, I want to walk with you on the beach and cover your eyes so you can feel the sand in your toes. And these beautiful lines one after another. And then he, he, he said, do they not know that this is a movie? Are they not aware that he's got a makeup artist? He's got a customer? He's got multiple writers? And he's got as many takes as it takes to get it right. Give me that, I can be irresistible. <laughs> no, I was saying he was saying that. And you, Trey, could be. You're getting bombarded with messages that are teaching your heart the wrong thing. You know, the things you need to be scared about in our culture are not seeing this thing or this thing. The things you need to be scared about is this overarching message that tells you your heart, isn't, your heart doesn't matter, that your heart's not valuable. That breed inappropriate desire in you. And so, getting some of those messages, even if just getting some scriptures memorized, that at some level counteracts that. But I think there's a deeper level to it, too. When he says, the, Your word I've hidden in my heart, it said, You know what's happened to me? 
something that is true is no longer on the surface of my life. It's now in the center of my soul. And I think differently. My heart's been reoriented. God, you have taught me over the years things that are true, that I am not a user, and I don't have to be, that you can meet my desires, that I was never made to treat people as objects, that I was meant for life, and that I do not have to live for practices that kill off my soul. So, as I said, you are not defenseless. This is what you have. Here is some of what you have to begin to change your heart. It is a process. Now, uh, uh, let me put it to you this way. Uh, the, the Kiowa Half Marathon is four weeks away, and I signed up to run. I ran it last year. I'm not running this year. And I'm not running this year because I have multiple physical issues in my face, my head, my neck, you know, lots, uh, you know. But anyway, so I can't, I can't do it. You know, if, if I said to you today, you know what? It's four weeks away, and... Doggone, I'm going to run that thing. Send the stretcher, pick me up in the fourth mile, <laughs> carry me away. Not going to happen. There's no amount of willpower that's going to get me, that's going to get her done in a month. <laughs> Not going to happen. Could I do it a year from now? Now, my wife doesn't want to run it a year from now because she doesn't like flat. Really, she doesn't like running on flat. She wants to run on hills. Not me. I want it flat. If, it, if we could go downhill the whole time, that would be great. But anyway... <laughs> I'm rethinking this, which is, uh, you know, maybe a year from now. Some of these issues hopefully will get resolved. And, you know, I've actually set it as a goal uh, to increase my functionality and to be able to move toward that. But you know what? At some point, I'm going to have to get out there and run. I'm going to have to begin training because a month from now, I won't be ready. A year from now, I could be if I want it and I begin to apply myself to the resources I have if I begin to train. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do today, to begin to train, as we've talked about in this series. And here's several things I want to explore with you. One is this, we underestimate the power of praying to God. We underestimate the fact that you have at your disposal a God who loves you and longs to wait into your life, and who says, come to me, come to me with your needs. We underestimate the power of going to God and asking him to weigh in. Do not buy in to the hopelessness that you cannot change. It is not true. For some of you, I'd like to, as a bit of an aside, I'd like to challenge you. You know, as I said, I, I, I marry somebody, I perform weddings about once a month. And uh, everyone with, with, with high hopes. And like this last one yesterday, legitimately high hopes. You know, I see no red flags. Just want to make that really clear. And yet, at every couple we look at, it's, it's easy to look at them and say, Lord, I, I do not want them, oh, I so want them to thrive. I do not want the forces that would teach their hearts to be discontent, the forces that would drive them with desire that is not for their partner. I do not want to see that happen. This is my encouragement to some of you who are perhaps a bit older, who are Maybe you've been married for a while, but maybe not. You've been walking with, with Jesus for a while. This is my encouragement to you, to look around the room, and I don't mean like stare at somebody right now. <laughs> Be surreptitious. Think of like you're a spy, okay? 
But begin to ask yourself this question, God, who can I pray for? Who can I lift up? Who can I bring before you and ask you to weigh into their life that the forces which would tear them apart would not win out? And I want to challenge you to begin to pray for those people. Find one couple. Find a, a single or two that you're going to pray for like that. The second resource we have, as I was saying, is, is God's Word. And just like in the half marathon illustration, it's a process. It is not about you learning three or four scriptures or saying today, I really should lust less, so I'm going to memorize that verse, this, that verse, and then I'm going to be fine. It's about going into God's Word and having Him transform your heart to break loose the faulty programming that is not you, that is not how you were made, and to allow Him to reveal who you truly are. The Bible continually talks about God transforming our heart and renewing our minds. I'm going to read you one short section out of this book, which I strongly recommend. I get no royalties from it. Nonetheless, I continue to recommend it every week because it's incredibly valuable. And this is one way, if you're serious about seeing your life differently, wait in. Um, Anyway, The Life You've Always Wanted, also available on iTunes. In a section on reading scripture, he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And this is what he says, Often we are so burdened and overwhelmed with other thoughts images and concerns that it may take a long time before God's word has swept all else aside and come through. Now in this context he's talking about in in a time, let's say you're in a time when you are seeking to read God's word and he's saying in that time, in that individual moment, sometimes our thoughts and our preoccupations are so deeply, deeply ingrained in us that it'll it'll take some time to sweep them away. But even more than in a single time, this is true in an overarching sense. It will take some time for your heart to be reoriented. It'll take some time for the faulty wiring to be disconnected. It'll take some time for the continual programming you've had, which would say that other people are objects and that you're a user and desire run rampant is fine. It'll take some time to break that down. But break it down, he will. As you begin to take God's word in and your heart and your life becomes reoriented. A, I, I think as a fourth. A next thing I would say in terms of our resources is you have one another. Do not undersell the power of one another. You, you can't, we cannot live great lives alone. We can't even live mediocre lives alone. Seriously. You, you can't see change in your life without other people rallying around with you, without some brothers and sisters to walk alongside of you, without a band. You know, to, to, to go the same... I don't mean a band. You know, I mean like in... Because if that's the case, a lot of us are out of luck. Without, a, without, a, um, without some people who are walking with us. And not necessarily to say to you, hey, are you doing that? You know, th- that has some value. But it's more than that is choosing. There's this passage that Paul writes to his, his young apprentice, Timothy, and he says, run with. I want you to run with some people who are going the way you are. For too long, you've run with others. Run with some people who want the same things that you do. And then you begin to speak message to one another. You begin to hear about God's truth in ways that you wouldn't have. You begin to be surrounded by others who are walking and going the same way you are. There is a power in seeking to see God transform our hearts in the midst of community. I encourage you to wait in. And a, another, maybe fifth resource we have 
is this. We, we engage in service at Warehouse because there's actually a need out there. We also engage in service because our hearts need to be retrained. Service is the diametric opposite of using. And something happens when you wait in somebody else's life. And sometimes even in really small ways. Something happens when you offer your time with, to some little kids who can't offer you a whole lot back that you want in your hands. Something happens when you weigh in in someone's home who has not, they can't pay you. They can't give you anything back. Something happens when we build out a store and we give our time and our effort not to give brownie points but to help you. Something happens in us and the cycle begins to break. The cycle that keeps trying to see what do you have for me, it begins to break. And we realize, ah, this is who I am. The other was false. This is me. You are more, you are more than the stories you've been told. You can go through day after day and hear stories about you that are not real. You can go day after day with your heart continuing to be tramped on and run over. You are not an object. One day, a couple thousand years ago, this magnetic, charismatic leader who had built this stunning following, seemingly out of nothing, was gathered in a place of some volatility with a small band of followers. And he got very somber. And then he picked up a loaf of bread and he said, see this bread, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And then he picked up a cup of wine and he said, you see this, this cup? This cup is an image. It represents my blood which is going to be shed for you. And they did not understand until he died. In that singular time in history, that seminal moment, what Jesus does once and for all is communicate to you that you are more than what you've been told. You are not an object. Your heart is of value. And I will lay down my life for you. I will not use you. You are not a prop. I will lay down my life for you. Now come, follow me. He rises from the dead three days later. And he says, let anyone come to me. Anyone. Who longs for life. Who longs to be whole again. Who longs for forgiveness. Who knows that they were made for more. Who knows they were made for God. Let anyone come to me. And come and follow me. And I will teach you to live a new way. Today, as we come to communion, it is a reminder. It's a reminder that you are not defenseless. 
that you have resources. And the primary resource you have is the love of the Son of God and the presence that he promises in the center of your life. And the hope that is he sees something more and he will weigh in day after day to make you whole again. Away with lust. Not because somebody told you you're going to go blind. Away with lust. Because you are more than that. And deep down you know that. Today, if you're someone who has never come into relationship with God, if you've never even understood what it was about, if you thought somehow what it was about was, you know, you're gonna, we're going to tell you to be a better person really quick or you have to stop doing things or you should go to church more often, away with that notion too. What Christianity is about is the love of God who came to earth to pay a penalty for you, to forgive you for every wrong thing you've done and to reorient your heart away from ways that will destroy life both within you and others and turn you to live a life full, fully engaged with him and free. It's for you. It's for you today. If you've never done that, walk into it today. A simple step. You always got to take a step. The beginning of the journey for you is today a step where you say, okay, I'm in. Away with this false self. And you walk up front as we serve communion. And as the communion servers walk up to you and they say to you, this is the body. This is the body of Christ and it was broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus and it was shed for you. For you. And you receive that and you simply say, God, that's what I want. I want forgiveness and I want you and I want a new life. And it begins. If you do that today, there's a card around you. It says transform on it. Check on it that that's what you did today. I, I, I gave my life to Jesus today. I, I, or I want to know what it means to give my life to Jesus if you're still struggling with that. And, and put that in one of the boxes and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you about what that means. If you're somebody who is a follower of Jesus, what I would love for you to do for all of us today is have this be a moment of reorientation. A moment when you, as you take that, you say, away with that stuff. Away with the false thing. I want new life. God, invade me even more. Open my heart even more to you in my life and I will walk your way. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us now in a world of constant distractions and preoccupations and thoughts, images, ways that pull us away from you, would you now hone in, strip much away, and allow us to hear from you in this simple ceremony of bread and wine. We wait for you. Come and be in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the communion